Right, good afternoon everyone. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Olivier Schmidt, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the Centre of War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. In addition to that, he also currently serves as Vice President and Scientific Director at the French Association for War and Strategic Studies. Before joining the University of Southern Denmark in 2015, he obtained his PhD from the Department of War Studies at King's in London and was a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Montreal Centre for International Studies. Dr. Schmidt holds MA degrees from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva and Sciences Po A. Uh, ex, um, a reserve officer in the French Navy, he has pause experience in the French MV and NATO, and he's also worked with two think tanks, the Geneva Centre for the Democratic Control of Armed Forces and the IISS um, uh, in London and now uh, across Europe as well. Uh, he conducts research in two broad fields. First, he looks at the role of ideas and norms in world politics with research on strategic narratives, influence and propaganda, and also far-right ideologies. There's a seat down here. Um, second, he's interested in security and strategic studies. In particular, multilateral military cooperation, comparative defense policies, arms control, military transformation, and the changing character of war. He's the invite. So today he's going to be speaking on emerging military technologies and new military revolution. Over to you. Thank you so much, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, for me, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Uh, I mean, it's a great center. I've admired the work that is being done at the center for uh, for some years. Uh, I'm very happy to see Rob again. Uh, it had been a while. So yeah, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, before we begin, I have to say that um, it's true that I'm a professor, nobody's perfect at the University of Southern Denmark, but I'm currently on secondment at the French Institute for Higher National Defense Studies, which is basically the French equivalent to the Royal College of Defense Studies, um, which is under the, in the French system, it's under the Prime Minister's office. So anything, I'm only speaking in my personal capacity. And nothing I say will reflect <coughs> the view of the Prime Minister's office in any way, shape, or form. So I have to, I have to say that. Um, so we are here to uh, talk about uh, emerging military technologies and the potential that they have to trigger a, a new military revolution. I am not going to present any conclusions. Uh, what I'm going to do is not presenting you with a full-fledged argument or uh, having a kind of top-down uh, approach to it. What I would like to do this afternoon is really to uh, present some work hypothesis and eventually to stimulate our collective thinking. And uh, so after I've, uh, I'm done talking, uh, I'll be happy to discuss it and to be contradicted, uh, hopefully. Uh, so again, yeah, it will not be something full-fledged, but uh, it's more thinking uh, in, uh, in progress uh, at the moment, and I really hope that we can have a good discussion uh, afterwards. So to begin with, what do we mean by military revolutions. I'm not going to insult you in the sense that I'm sure you are all familiar with, uh, with the concepts uh, coming from uh, Michael Roberts uh, in the 50s, um, who is describing a change in the way um, the European way of war evolved in the 17th century that led to broader uh, political and military consequences. So the core argument goes that the introduction of firearms leads to a new way to train the armed forces, for example, through, uh, through drill, that leads over, uh, overall to new types of uh, taxation that states need to implement in order to sustain their armed forces, 
which leads to change in the nature of the state because the state has more extraction capacity and so on. So basically, a change in military affairs leads to broader uh, political and social consequences. There has been a lot of debates about the concept itself, uh, most notably, I guess, bet uh, I guess, between Jeremy Black and Geoffrey Parker on the exact content and shape of the military revolution. There has been debates about whether there had been an Asian military revolution 200 years before the uh, European military revolution. Other debates about um, a link that, that has been made between the European military revolution and the um, gradual domination of Europe uh, on the world stage. It's uh, specifically Geoffrey Parker that makes this argument that the European military revolution led to this uh, increased military potential that led to um, the rise of Europe in the world system. All this has been debated. <coughs> On top of that, there is also the confusion that has been made in the 90s between the concept of military revolutions and the term revolution in military affairs that was uh, promoted or at least studied by Andrew Marshall in the US uh, at the Office of Net Assessment. And the core argument be uh, behind this uh, concept of revolution in military affairs was that the character of war was going through profound transformation and it will be I'm caricaturing a bit, but it will be possible to lift the fog of war through network-centric technologies. Um, but the difference between this revolution in uh, military affairs, RMA, that uh, was studied by Marshall and, uh, and his crew, is that it does not have the drastic social-political consequences that the concept of military revolution usually entails. Also, the time frame is different. What, uh, the, the historians who have been studying the European Military Revolution uh, look at are processes that go through several decades. Uh, Marshall and the RMA were mostly thinking about the 20, 25 years uh, time span. So the, um, uh, the term revolution has been used widely, both in academic debate but also in policy debate, which means that the term military revolution itself is a bit loaded and a bit complicated to handle. So all this introduction to, uh, to say that I'm aware of the fact that the term military revolution is not perfect because of all this uh, history of how it has been used uh, in different ways, I use it in, um, as a heuristic device, basically to uh, describe a change in the conduct of warfare which itself triggers changes in the functioning of societies and polities. So political organizations. So just as this broad category, this is how I use the term military revolution. So I'm going to give you my core hypothesis up front. And um, my question is that uh, is to investigate whether we are on the brink on the brink of a new military revolution due to current technological changes. In particular, I think. Uh, that there is a convergence of mature, <coughs> emerging, and prototypal technologies <coughs> which will be converging between now and the next 25 years. And those new technologies, which are primarily but not exclusively uh, military in nature, together, it's really this convergence that together 
has the potential to alter what I think are our perceptions of time, of space, and of self. And this alteration of our perceptions of time, space, and self may have what I think will be unforeseen and therefore understudied consequences, uh, social and political consequences. And the technologies I'm talking about are linked to the so-called fourth industrial revolution. So here I'm borrowing from uh, Klaus Schwab. Um, I mean, again, it's not perfect. The category of fourth industrial revolution is just a catch-all term to describe new technology, new genomics technologies, AI, cyber, uh, in propulsion, sensors, additive manufacturing, energy, and, and energy storage. So all those uh, different categories are uh, brought together in this catch-all term of fourth industrial revolution. So what am I talking about exactly? Let's begin with perceptions of time. So time, in my view, is a bit of an afterthought uh, in strategic thinking. Uh, people who are looking at uh, tactics think about time in terms of tempo or sequ sequencing <coughs> of operations, right? Like how do we uh, achieve cumulative effect? So you have to uh, have a sequence of different operations or you need to think about the tempo of your military operations. Or they think about it in terms of what the Greeks will call the kairos. So seizing the moment, there is an opportunity, you need to seize the moment. But this is the... Um, the, the main ways uh, classical strategic thinking considers the role of time. Um, I think it's a bit underexplored. Uh, there is a, a new scholarship at the moment which is emerging on how to think about time in strategic affairs. There is a, um, a great article by uh, Andrew Carr in the Journal of Strategic Studies that was published, uh, I think, this year, um, which I think is, uh, is really interesting to try to uh, think about time in a different way. Uh, I will be very shameless here, but I'll also plug uh, a book that uh, I co-edited with two colleagues, which is called Wartime. Um, but I still think there is much to do uh, in that regard. Why? Because perceptions of time um, is a heavily social and cultural construct. I can develop in the, in the Q&A if you want, but basically the core argument is that we do not experience time, we do not experience the flow of time, uh, in the same way, depending on our social and cultural backgrounds. And this is a consistent finding from sociology and anthropology for the past 50 years. So, for example, just to go straight to the point, um, the experience of time in Western countries is often linear. So basically we see time as being linear insta instead of cyclical, that most uh, Asian cultures, this is how uh, most Asian cultures uh, understand it. And at least since the 19th century, we experience time through what we perceive as being speed and acceleration. Everything seems to be going faster and faster. I've argued somewhere else in a, in a paper that our perception of time through the categories of speed and acceleration actually have an impact on our military policy making. But now I would like to come back to the new technologies. My sense is that emerging technologies have the potential to drastically alter our own perceptions of time within the next 20 to 25 years. I'll start with cyber technologies. Cyber technologies are a bit contradictory because both uh, they foster a sense of immediacy, 
but also of immanent presence. Let me explain. Cyber campaigns have a different temporality from uh, standard military campaigns. For example, Max Smith's uh, talks about the transitory nature of cyber weapons. So when you've used them, they basically disappear, which is kind of different from uh, traditional weapons that <coughs> don't disappear unless they are being destroyed. So that changes our idea of sequencing military operation. The sequence that we are building are different. More broadly, the inclusion of cyber in our daily lives through cell phones, through virtual reality uh, tomorrow, I think will modify our expectations of immediacy. Can we wait? What is the acceptable delay? And what do we consider being slow or fast uh, in our daily experiences? And, uh, I think some of you at least will remember the first uh, generations of connecting to the internet in the 90s through the modem where you had this weird sound uh, when it was connecting. And when I think about it nowadays, I think all of us will just throw out the, the computer out of the window because we will experience it as being extremely slow. Um, but it's a change in our perception of what is a legitimate delay in our uh, interactions and in our experience of life, which is totally triggered by uh, emerging uh, technologies. Second type of technologies that can alter our perception of time, I think, is uh, hypervelocity. I mean, there has been a lot of hype about hypervelocity in a way. I don't think it's that much of a break in the strategic environment. But what is certain is that um, we perceive it as compressing the decision-making windows that policymakers <coughs> have at their disposal. So it's compressing the time that, uh, or the window of opportunity that policymakers have to react to a potential aggression. So again, changing how we perceive time. If we don't have that window of opportunity, do we, do we have one? How, how do we need to think about strategic stability? It means that we cannot react, we need to preempt. <coughs> so the perception of time is different. It's not about reacting to something coming in, it's about preempting something that might happen in the future. The last emerging technology that could have uh, an effect on our perception of time is of course AI, which makes decisions by definition much faster than any human being. So, all this uh, change, uh, again, to, to summarize this argument about our perceptions of time, um, all, all those emerging technologies may have an impact on how we perceive time and what we consider being an acceptable speed and an acceptable delay in our daily lives. And I'm um, opening, uh, you know, it's an open question, but what are the consequences for our social interactions? Right? Uh, how long do we want to wait for a friend in a coffee shop? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, what are what our consequences for work? What are the expectations that our bosses are going to have from workers uh, based on what they think is an acceptable delay? What does that mean for our cognitive capabilities? <coughs> right? The way our brain develops uh, from childhood to uh, adulthood. All these are potential social and, uh, and political consequences that 
may be triggered by uh, emerging technologies, most of them being from a military uh, origin. Second argument, potential changes in our perceptions of space. Space is, of course, a very important factor in how we experience the world um, and how we see our place in the world. Uh, again, I mean, the way we experience space is a very social construct by, uh, by nature. For example, depending on your social status and your educational background, and I'm very aware of the fact that I'm, uh, we are at Oxford right now, uh, it is very likely that you experience space in, uh, as a kind of archipelago of uh, different cities. So um, you may have family in London and New York, uh, you may vacation in Paris or Berlin or Singapore, and with a dash of uh, exoticism uh, here and there uh, doing a road trip, but you probably have not extensively traveled in any of those countries. So your, your experience of space is actually an archipelago of urban environments in several countries. That is your experience of space. But if you go to Berlin, have you been to Brandenburg around? I mean, don't go there, it's really ugly. But that's, <laughs> ba that's basically the idea, that your experience of space is really different and disconnected from the um, political authority of, uh, of the state that is having, having uh, sovereignty <coughs> over a, a certain territory. So I'm caricaturing a bit, you know, in the sense of uh, you and also me experiencing this archipelago of different cities worldwide, but you, you see the point it, that depending on your social uh, background, your social capital and so on, we all have different experiences of space. You can easily imagine people uh, in the UK, France, Germany nowadays, whose experience of space is a 50 kilometers radius around the city where they were born in, which is totally different from what most of you are experiencing anyways. So our perception of space is inherently political. And again, here we have uh, <coughs> technologies that may alter the way we experience space. Again, starting with cyber, uh, cyber capabilities, <coughs> because it's, of course, the most obvious one. Uh, in the sense that there is a possibility to live in different cyberspaces, which, in the end, may shape our political and social affiliations. And disconnecting our political and social affiliations from our physical location, where we are at a specific moment in time. I was, um, you know, the um, when uh, ISIS was uh, still a thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, they still are, but uh, still had a territorial um, anchoring. You know, there was a cyber caliphate, which I have always found is an interesting term, because uh, they were basically the hacking and propaganda uh, branch for for ISIS. But the term cyber caliphate is in itself interesting because it signals that you have people who can be anywhere in the world, physically anywhere in the world, but still feeling that they belong to a specific political entity, which is, uh, which is the caliphate. So there is a decoupling between the physical space that those people inhabit and the political affiliation, which is facilitated by uh, cyber means. And I suspect that we will see more and more of those disconnections between where we are and what we feel is our political and social uh, affiliations. 
Another example uh, of a different nature, uh, but still in this same idea of disconnecting where we are from what we see and what we experience, is the fact that the digitalization of war removes the distinction between actors, decision makers, and bystanders. Basically, because we see images of war all the time, belligerents are competing for our attention. They are competing for the images that we are going to see, which are also going to shape how we react to certain, uh, to certain events. And uh, again, that is, uh, well, I think this is uh, sort of erasing or not deleting, but erasing this distinction between being a bystander and being a participant. But this is uh, part of this trend of disconnecting the political and the, the physical uh, presence and the uh, political consciousness uh, in a way. And of course, the last uh, trend in that uh, area is virtual reality, right? Uh, I mean, the project that uh, Facebook revealed, uh, Meta or whatever, is totally dystopian in, uh, in nature, and uh, Zuckerberg has been uh, totally mocked for, uh, and deservedly mocked for presenting it, because I mean, he has never looked as much as a robot as basically this, uh, those presentations. But it's revelatory of a broader trend of um, engineers, uh, of uh, technologists that are actually looking forward to disconnecting our physical presence and our social experience. Uh, and I think this is, uh, this is just a first step in what will probably be other attempts to participate in this disconnection between uh, our, yeah, uh, our body and our consciousness, uh, in a sense. Second technology that might alter our perception of space is of course uh, the competition in extra atmospheric space uh, at the moment. So, I mean, you are all aware of that, I suppose. There is a gradual militarization uh, of extra atmospheric space, which is made possible by new technologies, uh, satellite technologies to begin with, but also anti-satellite uh, capabilities, so basically missiles that are uh, now able to shoot, uh, to shoot down sat uh, satellites. And I think that if this competition uh, increases, that will make people realize that most of our daily lives depend on space assets. I mean, your cell phones, your TV connections, uh, a lot of the way uh, of the things that we use uh, every single day depend on a signal that is coming literally uh, from space. So it was interesting that, uh, when Russia uh, did their uh, ASAT uh, uh, test last week because you know there was a lot of uh, fragments that <coughs> went through the International Space Station, so basically potentially endangering the lives of the astronauts uh, in the space station uh, at, the, um, uh, at the moment. And I think, uh, I might be totally wrong, but I think it was one of the very first time that the global public realized that what we do in space can have very uh, concrete consequences for citizens and maybe in the future for what is going to happen on Earth. Uh, you know, most military people uh, for the past five, six years have been 
very aware of the competition coming up. You all know the uh, space comment that was created in the US, also one in France, uh, for example. There, there is even a show on Netflix uh, about uh, the, uh, the space comment. So most military people have been aware of that. I don't think the global public has been uh, and has realized the uh, strong connection that exists between the extra atmospheric space and um, basically what we are doing every single day on Earth. Um, if the competition continues, we are going to see more and more of those connections uh, being disrupted, which will make the public and people realize that there is, uh, there is a continuum be uh, between the two, which will change the way we think about the space that is a legitimate concern. I don't think that extra atmospheric space is a legitimate concern. It's not politicized, if you want, uh, in national discourses nowadays. It's not. Maybe it will be in the future. Maybe you will see movements to say we need to protect our satellites, whatever, right? So, but I think that the way we experience extra atmospheric space and um, will change in the sense that we will gradually realize the strong connection between what we do on Earth and what happens uh, up there. And of course, it's not a military development, but uh, an economic development. Uh, space tourism is getting cheaper and cheaper, which also means that uh, space will not be the ultimate frontier, but it will be a new neighborhood. And um, again, when it becomes a new neighborhood, there is a, an increased potential to politicize the, envir uh, the environment and to compete in it. So all those, this convergence of technology called trends, I think will um, make us experience the space around us differently and um, change the way we perceive uh, space overall. Finally, there is the potential for changing our perception of self, who we are. Again, what constitutes our identity is a mix of socialization, of cultural upbringings, and uh, uh, of ideas about what is our physical integrity, right? Uh, who we are uh, as uh, personalities, but also who we are as bodies, in a, in a sense, that exist in the world. And here, we have a number of technologies that have the potential to directly affect our bodies. Think about you know, all the debates about the augmented soldiers, the so-called augmented soldiers. So you can have basically two ways to do it. The first one being uh, genomic technologies, so gene editing, so basically manipulating DNA to remove potential, uh, potential flows. But when you think about it, DNA is in public consciousness seen as being the core of what a human being is. It's supposed to be like the most natural of things in a sense, because it comes from the recombination of two um, of the, the genes that are transmitted for, uh, from your parents. So if you start editing this and change people directly through gene editing, I wonder what it will trigger in terms of how we perceive what is our integrity, our physical integrity, and how we are going to react to it. A second uh, potential change is, of course, um, all the potential implants to improve uh, uh, the physical capabilities of soldiers, 
that are being, uh, that several military uh, organizations are working on at the moment, basically creating cybers. Uh, improving eyesight, improving earrings, improving physical uh, fitness and resistance, so on and so forth. Again, I, personally, I'm a fan of Japanese science fiction, I'm a fan of Ghost in the Shell, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but, you know, you are, modi uh, because I have also terrible eyesight, so to me it will be a clearly an improvement. But um, it changes the way we perceive the human. Uh, what is uh, what is a human uh, in itself? So that's one uh, trend, technological trend that can modify our perception of self. Second uh, trend is, and here I'm relying on uh, Kenneth Payne's work uh, on uh, artificial, uh, artificial intelligence and strategy. Strategy is a profoundly human activity, right? Because it's really a, uh, about the use of violence. And it is shaped by two things. It's shaped by our rezoning. I mean, we hope that there is a degree of rezoning when we use force. But it's also profoundly shaped by our, by our emotions, right? I mean, uh, I'm being very close of each and here. But you know that it's one of the elements of the trinity, that passions are one of the elements of the trinity. Um, if we start automating some degree of decision-making in warfare through artificial intelligence, if pushed too far, we have the potential to remove this very human element in warfare for the first time in history. Removing passion in war from the for the first time in history. And I mean, again, it's an open question, but what will be the consequences of this kind of automated war? Is it still a war if it doesn't include passion, if it's so one element of the trinity, or is it just automated murder? Right? If we don't have passion, we don't have, maybe we remove the connection with the political motivations for using force. Again, it's an open question, but I think it's at least worth thinking about it. So, to wrap up, uh, I think it's this combination of uh, technologies which are themselves at different stages of maturation that could lead to a profound change in our understanding of time, space, and self, and with enforcing political and social consequences. Individually, any of the changes I just described will probably be easy to um, integrate in our daily lives. I mean, our societies change all the time through technological developments. What I think is interesting right now is that we have a convergence of a lot of these different technologies which all have uh, an, um, an impact on the way we experience the world around us and they are all converging more or less in the same time frame. And this is what I think is worth uh, studying uh, at the moment. So of course you have a lot of you know, think tanks, military organizations, uh, academics who are looking at the impact of these new technologies on warfare mm -hmm. itself. But I think it's also worth uh, going a bit further and ask the question of um, what will it do, cumulatively speaking, for our, uh, our societies. So this being said, I think there is a few, uh, I'm trying to give you a few thoughts on uh, potential directions for, I don't know, uh, research papers, if there are uh, MA students or PhD projects or, or whatever. But I think 
a few things that I think uh, will be worth thinking about. The first thing um, is, are our strategic concepts fit for this new environment? The strategic canon in the 20th century is fundamentally deeply influenced by the um, thinking about nuclear weapons. Right? Um, the, w the concepts that we have developed are a reaction to the nuclear revolution. It all comes from Brody uh, 46 and Schelling 62, uh, basically. So think about the, the most important terms in strategic thinking in the 20th century. It's uh, coercion, deterrence, compellence, uh, well, you know, uh, you know your shaming. Uh, I don't have to uh, to summarize it. But what it is about, fundamentally, it's about signal <coughs> intentions. You need to signal, in one way or the other. It's all about signaling credible commitments, communicating red lines, communicating capabilities, communicating intentions. The core idea of strategic thinking in the 20th century it's about signaling. And if done well, this will lead to some kind of punctuated equilibrium between the adversaries, right? So it may fail. We may misunderstand the uh, adversary's intentions and vice versa. It may fail. But the core idea is that it signaling done well will lead to some sort of strategic stability. And that has deeply shaped our doctrines and the way we think about the use of force. Now, I think that uh, combined, again, combined, some of those new technologies have the potential to create a new strategic drama, or at least a new strategic uh, environment, which is about shaping and manipulating the, uh, the adversary. Think about you know, the Russian uh, liminal warfare, so uh, uh, a stage of warfare which is before uh, the use of force. Think about the Chinese who talk about the three warfare, so public opinion warfare, legal warfare, and psychological warfare. Um, recently, um, France updated its uh, core um, uh, operational concept, and the new buzzword uh, from our uh, Joint Chief of Staff is to say that we need to win the war before the war, which I think is a ter terrible uh, phrasing, but don't quote me on that, uh, not yet. Um, but what it's about, all those ideas of liminal warfare, street warfare, winning the war before the war, it's about shaping the strategic environment. It's not about signaling, it's about shaping what the adversary is doing. And I think we are very uncomfortable with this uh, state of affairs. We are very uncomfortable with this environment. Uh, and this is why we have terms such as uh, hybrid warfare, fourth generation warfare, gray zone warfare, hyper war, uh, and so on and so forth. All those terms, they say that we're in between something, right? It's hybrid, uh, it's gray zone, uh, whatever. It's in between uh, some categories. So we are very uncomfortable with that. And I think it's because we don't have, we haven't, or at least we haven't found um, the shelling for the new uh, strategic environment. We haven't found the, the person or the persons uh, who give us the vocabulary and the concepts that help us make sense of this new uh, state of affairs. And 
I think uh, what, uh, so one of the line of effort, I think, should be uh, going into that direction, trying to uh, update uh, our concepts and our strategy vocabulary. And I think it will be also worth looking at the cultural representations of these new strategic environments in, uh, in movies, in uh, video games, in series, uh, TV shows, and so on. Not only because it can give us ideas on how to handle it, but more also, mostly, because it will tell us something about how our societies are evolving in terms of their expectations of war, of how war will unfold, and what the role of the military will be in this hybrid fourth uh, generation, whatever you call it, uh, in this type of, uh, of environment. <coughs> Second thing we, I think we need to think about uh, in depth will be to rethink what the arms industry is, or at least an, uh, a technological and industrial base uh, is. And here I think it's important to distinguish between uh, open and closed innovation. So to summarize it very, uh, very quickly, closed innovation is state-led, uh, open innovation is private sector-led. 20th, uh, 20th century military innovation is closed innovation. Most of it came from the, uh, the state directing uh, research in certain uh, areas. It's very likely that we are now in an era of open innovation, which means that it's led by the private sector, which also means that the private sector, um, that uh, innovations will spread and diffuse more quickly because the private sector has incentives to, uh, to sell. Um, so what, is the what are the consequences of this state of affairs for uh, a defense industrial base? For example, China has long pushed for what they call civil military fusion in their arms industry. What exactly does that entail, uh, including for, for, Western, uh, for Western countries? What does it mean for traditional defense companies, which are still focused on developing advanced platforms, uh, jet fighters, frigates, uh, whatever, when you have companies such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, which invest billions in R&D, uh, investments that states themselves most of, most of the time cannot match, apart from the United States, but uh, French uh, R&D is less than uh, what Amazon invests in R&D. Same, uh, same goes for, for the UK. Also something uh, which I think is interesting is that most of the technologies uh, I've been talking about rely on one way or the other on data management, data storage, data use, data management. Uh, does it, is our 20th century model of uh, state-sponsored platform development appropriate when what makes actually the platform work is how we are going to handle, uh, handle the data. What, are, what should states invest in? What kind of companies should, uh, should they develop? <coughs> and the, la the last thing is that how do those technologies, which are data-driven, are going to proliferate? Because data is very easy to exchange. So I think there is a number of uh, issues here in terms of what our uh, defense industrial base is going to look like, what is the shape of it, what are the um, uh, 
borders or uh, the limitations of um, the defense industry, and we need to have a much more open thinking about uh, what we are going to include in, um, in our uh, definition of a defense industrial base. Third issue, uh, very quickly, what does that mean for arms control? When most of the technologies we are going to develop rely on software, which is by definition difficult to <coughs> observe and analyze because you cannot do beam counting. You cannot count the number of tanks or frigates or, or whatever, right? Uh, how do you do arms control with cyber weapons when it's a line of code? But if the one of the main tools we had to do or to develop strategic stability, which is arms control, is becoming obsolete because we cannot actually control <laughs> the, the arms, what does that mean for strategic stability uh, in the future? And uh, how do we stabilize strategic competition? I think it's, uh, it's a very important issue to, um, to, to, to develop. Fourth, and lastly, uh, something interesting to look at is how do the armed forces shape those changes, because they have agency in it, but also adapt, adapt to, to those changes. I think we need more empirical research uh, in that area. Um, I think an interesting issue will be to look at the future of interoperability uh, in an alliance such as NATO. It's not a new issue, but it's, uh, I mean, interoperability in NATO is basically the history of NATO. But um, I mean, it has taken a new shape now that not only do we need to coordinate our doctrines, but we also need to uh, much better integrate our systems so that they can communicate with each other much more than just with uh, Link 16 and uh, like uh, technologies we have uh, we have at the moment. Also, an issue of recruitment: How do we recruit and train soldiers uh, in the future? How do we train cyber soldiers? Do we need to send them to boot camp? Do they need to have haircut regulations? Do they need to wear uniform? Um, I don't know, uh, it's a, but I think it's a, it's a legitimate debate. If we are going to start changing the bodies of our soldiers, how do we motivate them? Do we need to campaign in such a way that, okay, you have poor eyesight, join the military, you will have uh, you know, uh, new, uh, <laughs> new, uh, new eyes, uh, you're going to become a cyborg, and so, you know, uh, basically join the military to improve your uh, physical conditions. I don't know, it totally changes the way we think about the people we want to have in the armed forces. Uh, other issue is that how do um, those new technologies change the, the, sorry, the social status within the armed forces? I mean, we all know that historically speaking, there are arms or corps that are more prestigious than others and they have a vested interest in resisting change. Uh, Well-known history of uh, cavalry resisting the introduction of tanks because cavalry was the prestigious arms uh, in most European, European countries. Jet fighter pilots re resisting uh, the introduction of drones because it challenges their uh, prestige they have um, in the air forces. So who will the uh, apex pred uh, predators, uh, if you want, um, uh, be in the future. Um, 
and what are the prestige positions going to be? Uh, I think we need to, to think about that because the introduction of these new technologies is going to change the social status uh, within the armed forces. And last issue is how do we educate our military leaders uh, in, the, in this environment? We have a system of professional military education that basically followed the gradual complexification of warfare with um, the uh, initial training or school for uh, officers going through initial training being developed in the 18th, early 19th century. So basically when uh, you had to train uh, lieutenants uh, um, to command, uh, command a battalion, from the mid-19th century onwards, with the gradual complexification of warfare and the need to command uh, units that were, that were much larger, um, the system of uh, the war college developed. So inspired from the Kriegsakademie uh, uh, in Germany, but it basically spread throughout the world uh, in the 19th century because the size of the armed forces uh, led to the development of uh, staff, so, um, and we had, we felt the need to train officers to work in a, in a staff environment. And the third layer, which will be the Royal College of Defense Studies, was created at the, in the early 20th century to better integrate civilian and military leadership because the scale of warfare now involved the entire political leadership and war could not be removed from the broader conduct of political affairs uh, anymore. Therefore, the third layer of professional military education to you know, bring together civilian and military leadership. Is it still appropriate, this three-level education in a context where new technologies um, change social relations? And what do we need to teach to our military officers? Again, it's an important question. I think we need uh, empirical work uh, on this topic. I'm going to stop here. Uh, I think there is a lot of uh, exciting projects to, to think about in these broad frameworks of um, changes in the perceptions of time, space, and self, which uh, outlined. Um, and it's likely that the changes uh, in our political and social orders will not be as drastic as what uh, I exposed here or just outlined here, because in the end, technology is what we make of it, uh, right? But to make sure that decisions about the use of, te of technologies are not made for us, I think we should at least think about it. So thank you for our attention, and we're very happy to try to answer your questions.